So, Jay, I was thinking about Havoc's powers. Well, I hope they were drawn by Kent Williams, Miles. Of course. But on the more theoretical end, he and Cyclops generate different kinds of energy, right? Kent Williams and Cyclops? Uh, no. Havoc and Cyclops. Oh, yeah, yeah. Cyclops' blasts are concussive force and Havoc's are plasma. Okay, any other significant differences? Uh, let's see. Uh, in general, Havoc can handle a lot more energy. What kind of scale are we talking about? Oh, he's survived being dropped directly into a star. Dude. Yeah. People tend to overlook a lot of Havoc stuff. Not only is he ridiculously powerful even by X-Men standards, but man, Cyclops has nothing on Havoc when it comes to complicated personal lives. Including the time travel stuff? No, there's no time travel involved, but... Then I'm not really sure how it could get more complicated. Well, Havoc used to be a multiversal nexus of all realities. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 202 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. Now, as you may have noticed, I sound a little bit different this week. That is because I am recording on my laptop's built-in mic at my parents' house in Florida because I'm technically sort of on vacation and definitely down here visiting them. Sorry about that. Normal recording quality. We'll resume it next week. Florida? Okay, I figured you were in Asteroid M. Um, that's a little sad that you're not, but did you at least get taken to Florida by a flying circus cart that got pulled through the atmosphere uh, out of and into Earth's uh, normal sky? I did not. I did, however, go drinking with your mom last night, which was pretty great. Yeah, you sent me pictures. That was awesome. I'm glad you guys hung out. Yay. But yeah, I realize this sounds like the lead into a joke, but it's not. Your mom's just awesome. She totally is. It's true. Uh, also, in other real-life news, now, this will have this will be old news, or at least less immediate news, by the time this episode goes up, but our producer, Matt, uh, he, he and his partner made a human, a tiny human. Her name is Vera Jean, and she is awesome. And as far as we know so far, not a librarian or a cellist. So she'll probably be okay, but either way, congratulations to Matt and Jackie on making a person, and congratulations, Vera, on being born, and welcome to the world. We will avoid the obvious cliché this time. That seems probably for the best, but yes, we're super excited, so yay. Um, what we're also excited about is talking about some more of the all-new, all-different X-Factor. Now, initially, we were going to cover five issues, because there were five issues between where we last left off and the Executioner's song, Incredible, Terrible, Incredible, Wonderful, Awful Crossover, but, you know... There's a lot of content in here, and we figured we didn't want to just quickly go through from plot point to plot point. We actually wanted to sink our X teeth into this whole thing, our Liefeldian quantity of X teeth. That's a really upsettingly large number of teeth. As you may recall, this is the all-new, all-different X Factor. This is a government-sponsored team of mutants, and they've got Valerie Cooper as their government liaison. This is the same person who was in charge of the previous government-sponsored mutant team. Freedom Force. Right. Now, as for who's on the team, aside from just their government bureaucratic person, who, by the way, is awesome. I love Val Cooper. We have first their field leader, Alex Summers, a.k.a. Havoc. He's got plasma blasts and also a weakness for duplicitous redheads. He's ambiguously romantically involved with Polaris. Speaking of which, our second member is Lorna Dane, Polaris. 
Her powers are magnetism and rad green hair. She is currently ambiguously romantically involved with Havoc, despite not being a redhead. She makes up for it by being, if not at the moment, fairly morally ambiguous. Sometimes, yeah. Then we have one of my personal favorites going way back, Rain Sinclair, Wolfsbane. She's a former new mutant with werewolf transformation powers. Currently, she's genetically bonded to, and thus attracted to whether she likes it or not, to Havoc, because of some terrible stuff that went down in Genosha back when they were super jerks as opposed to just kind of jerks. The next several members of the team are Jamie Madrox, Multiple Man. His powers involve self-duplication, a questionable sense of humor, a great big green trench coat, and a lot of pop culture references. And as you may recall, one of his duplicates was one of X-Factor's first villains. Speaking of pop culture references, that brings us to Guido Caracella, strong guy. He absorbs kinetic energy to get stronger and bigger, but he has to release it or else bad things that we haven't heard a whole lot of details about happen. He's kind of goofy, kind of snarky, kind of selfish, and kind of great. Coming in a rare last is Pietro Maximoff. That's Quicksilver. He is a super speedster. Uh, his arrogance is extreme enough that it might actually also be part of his power set. He refuses to wear the X-Factor uniform, understandably. Um, and he is, he is one of, he actually, like Polaris, although sometimes not at the same time, is one of Magneto's many on-again, off-again children. Yup. Now, this new X-Factor, let's see, they fought an evil senator, a bunch of rogue Madrox duplicates, like you mentioned, Jay, Mr. Sinister's Nasty Boys, the Mutant Liberation Front, and first the Rebels, and then the government of the Middle Eastern nation of Transabal. They're mostly getting better at this whole being a super team thing. They also fought the Hulk a few times in, in context of the Transabal stuff. They totally did. So right now things are pretty stable, but they won't be for long, so let's head into X-Factor number 79, Rhapsody in Blue. Now, this issue had me at the cover, which aside from its art style would not have been out of place on a Silver Age Batman comic. Right, there's a background of sheet music, there's a blue woman playing the violin, and there's Quicksilver and Multiple Man dancing with like this manic abandon. And then the title superimposed over all of this is Rhapsody of Death! With an exclamation point. It's pretty great. Now, this is of course written by Peter David as part of his long but not long enough run in the early 90s. The art, however, is done by Jim Fern instead of Larry Stroman and inked by Al Milgram. I gotta say, Fern, he's a pretty good fill-in for Stroman. He's got a good impression of his style without trying to ape it too identically. Um, the storytelling is really clear and easy to follow. I like Jim Fern's work. He's okay. In this story in particular, I miss Stroman's Quicksilver. That is entirely legit. Yeah, Stroman does an especially good Quicksilver. And what we also miss, and I think we'll probably get to in one of the other issues we're covering, is Stroman's habit of, in every crowd scene he draws, giving you enough visual glory to feast your eyes on for a very long time. He loves drawing these incredibly varied crowd scenes. They're great, and we don't get that here, but that's okay. We get some other good stuff. So what we get to begin with is what's become a standard X-Factor opening bit, basically a cold open sketch, and this time it's about pianos. Jamie and Adupe are trying to learn to play the piano, and they won't stop playing chopsticks. Pietro is understandably annoyed and decides that he's going to immediately teach himself to play piano by ear very fast to show Jamie up. And the takeaway from this, as far as I can tell, is that Jamie should develop super speed. 
I, I suppose so. It is really funny, though, and I gotta say, this is one of my favorite uses of Quicksilver's powers in the comics. And what I especially love is it's not forgotten. There's a callback, because years later at Rick Jones's wedding, yeah, that Rick Jones, Quicksilver is the one playing the organ. So, well done, Marvel. I'm not sure if Peter David wrote that issue. If so, well-remembered Peter David. If not, well-remembered somebody else. Has anyone ever developed a, a speedster whose thing is that they've just used their powers to develop a lot of really, really advanced specific skills? Because that would be really cool. And it's, it's not something I really think of when I think of the speedster characters I know of. Yeah, I mean, that would be awesome. The nearest parallel I can think of isn't a speedster at all, and that's David Elaine, Prodigy, who can gain knowledge mm. from the people around him. That's got a similar feel, obviously a very different method, but I also love that power. I mean, I, I guess you could include Superman's super weaving, assuming he learned it under those circumstances. You just wanted to mention super weaving, which, you know, fair deuce. Is that a real phrase, or did you just make it up? I mean, I've heard people say it, therefore, technically, yes, it is a real phrase. I don't know if it's etymology, phraseology, phrase etymology, whatever it is. Anyway, this brief rivalry between Quicksilver and Madrox will come to a head as they are subsequently assigned a case together. Cue hijinks. The subject of the case in question is Rachel Argosy, mutant named, or possibly just nicknamed Rhapsody, and Rachel's mutation manifested when she was a very young music teacher at a high school in Two Forks, Maine. I assume she must have been a student teacher, given that they, they give her age as 20. Now, this is called out as a particularly late age for mutation to happen. They mention that it may have to do with her having had meningitis as a teen. But... It's also around the age when Havoc manifested, and plenty of other existing characters canonically manifested in the 18 to 22 range, so this, is, this still falls well within what's established as normal at this point. But anyway, now Rachel is blue, and also she can manipulate emotions and reality, and she can induce hallucinations, and she can fly by playing or otherwise harnessing the power of music. As far as I can tell from here, it seems like her access to her powers might be limited to music produced live by instruments like she doesn't seem to be able to turn it on by singing and we don't see her I, I don't think we see her interact with radios or anything like that yeah it's really ambiguous so that's that's thing one this is a common trope i suppose that we see in the early 90s characters will have powers that can basically just do whatever like they'll have a theme i'm thinking of um the carter reiking guy we talked about last time he's got you know plasma energy stuff and it's never really specified how it works which is very different than what we saw back in certainly the bronze age or even the earlier modern age thing two she goes by rhapsody she has blue skin rhapsody in blue it's like the george gershwin composition this is peter david doing what peter david does which is wordplay all the goddamn time and you know what i i feel pretty good about that this is also the arc that made me realize that I have been so well-trained by Peter David that whenever I see a name that I think I might maybe recognize, I go on an obsessive Googling fit to see if it's actually a pop culture reference. We'll get to that in just a minute. So now, once Rachel manifested, the parents immediately complained about a mutant teaching their kids, and the school board in an open meeting decided to fire her. Not long after that, the school board's president, a guy named Harry Sharp, was found dead apparently of natural causes, but they don't know for sure, and they can't tell a solid cause of death, just that he's dead. He's found in his own home, and his wife saw Rachel lurking outside the window when she found the body. So we've got a murder mystery on our hands. 
Now, the police did manage to corner Rhapsody once, but she stole a musical instrument from a nearby shop window. Have you ever noticed how in fiction shop windows just have whatever's convenient to the plot just right there? It's very nice. Also, no one ever seems to cut themselves up when they just sort of smash a fist through them. Maybe all glass in the comic book world or in the movie world is all that sugar glass that they use for props in movies. That would be very convenient, if not necessarily as effective. So what you're saying is that the Marvel Universe basically melts when it rains. I mean, the Marvel Universe does tend to explode or get destroyed very frequently, so yeah, we'll just add that onto the list. Melts when it rains. You know, breakaway masonry and and glass and furniture would explain a lot about both the frequent destruction and the relatively easy rebuilds of the X-Mansion. That is very true, but... Anyway, point being, this musical instrument that Rhapsody stole, she started playing it, some sort of a fiddle kind of thing, and used it to lull the police into a daze and then flew away like some uh, even more musical Mary Poppins. Her just not saying anything to the cops and just fiddling away into the sky, like, yeah, this is a particularly X-Factor style of weird. We get our Excalibur weird, which is sort of goofy interdimensional hijinks, and then we just get the, huh, Okay, X-Factor weird, and I really appreciate both of them. So I want to talk about the instrument she steals, which I'm deliberately not naming because, man, Jim Fern, you've got some explaining to do, or at least I have some explaining to do. So this thing is about the size of a viola da gamba, but it's got an end peg, and the thickness is cello proportion. It's also obviously not a viola da gamba because it's got rounded shoulders. It's got four strings instead of five to seven. It's got F holes instead of C holes, which means it's a member of the violin family. It's also got no chin rests. And again, it's got an end pin, even though she plays it like a violin or viola, or viola on her shoulder. So the only explanation I've been able, to, been able to come up with that's consistent with all of those factors is that it's a quarter size cello because those are usually about 39 inches long that she is just playing like a viola for some fucking reason. That is impressively well-researched. But I gotta admit, I kind of got stuck on the F-holes and C-holes part. I don't know what those are euphemisms for, but my inner 12-year-old is very, very pleased. It's the shapes of the holes in the face of the instrument. Oh, well, that's... I mean, I mean, I guess that's fine. Okay. Also, I didn't actually have to do that much research. This is... Because I'm me, this is stuff I know off the top of my head. And I ran it past my dad to make sure I wasn't forgetting anything because he's a period instrument um, aficionado. And yeah, there's there's nothing else it could particularly feasibly be. So we're going to stick with quarter-sized cello. Excellent. I 100% trust you on this. Now, following the cello incident, the local police have called in X-Factor to deal with Rhapsody and also to keep her safe from the inevitable mob that has gathered. And this mob is led by Harry Sharp, the late Harry Sharp's business partner, a man named Dick Roper. And speaking of references and, and research tangents, I originally assumed that this dude had to be a reference to the villain from The Night Watchman. But I looked it up, and that was actually published in 1993, which means that if it is a reference, it would have been a pretty much immediate one. And I think, in fact, it would have required Peter David to have access to a galley or something like that. I mean, we do know that Chris Claremont was awesome and having incredibly timely references. He was on the very cutting edge of science fiction and fantasy and stuff, so I don't know. Maybe David was the same way. Well, Richard Roper of of The Night Watchman is referred to as the worst man in the world. This one isn't actually as bad. He's kind of awful, but he's not too terrible. I just come back to Pokey, the worst kid in the neighborhood from Earthbound. Pokey apologized profusely. 
And then he became the last boss. I mean, second to last boss. The last boss was sort of a cosmic, semi-aborted, psychic fetus thing. Earthbound is surprisingly complex and surprisingly disturbing. It's a good game. It really is. Anyway, Quicksilver has no patience for the mob's bullshit. Madrax, however, somewhat does more so. Man, I feel so hard for Pietro in this story. He just, he's furious at the mobs, the mob, because they're being bigoted assholes. And Jamie immediately says, you know, are you sure you don't, you want to waste your time on this? And Pietro says, no, no, you're right. And they go away. And then Jamie insists he's won the argument. And Pietro says, no, I, we have to present a united front because we're working right now. But yeah, Pietro is, Pietro is perpetually stuck being the grown up in the room on this. One of the things I really appreciate about this run of X Factor is, Something that actually always brings me back, of all things, to the old movie Stand By Me. Do you remember that one based on the Stephen King story? By remember, I, I mean, I didn't see it growing up, but I've seen it within like the last five years because it was back in theaters for a night. Okay, yeah. Well, do you remember the part where, uh, you know, there are the four kids going on the big trip to see the body in the woods, and it keeps cutting back to different pairs of them walking along the train tracks, and you get to know each character very well based on their interaction with each other character one-on-one? We see a lot of that in X-Factor, and so we have all these awesome pairings of characters, and Quicksilver and Madrox is one of my favorites. Now, I love both characters, but they're obviously totally incompatible personality-wise, if not, you know, ethic-wise and stuff, and so seeing them bounce off of each other and learning more about each character as they just get pissed off or frustrated or entertained by mocking the other is so much fun and such good character development. So, as they develop as characters, they... they Almost immediately find Rhapsody. She is in the sky near a warehouse. She's still flying around with her tiny cello. And Pietro manages to run up the building, jump and tackle her through a skylight. But when Jamie gets indoors, Pietro's just standing standing and staring happily into space and saying his estranged wife's name while Rhapsody sits and plays a flute. Rhapsody then turns her attention to Jamie, who finds himself naked in a wheat field at the farm where he grew up, along with Rhapsody, naked herself and blue all over apparently, spouting some questionable lines about them making beautiful music together. Jamie's dupes managed to snap him out of it, but the damage is done. Jamie has decided, based on their hallucinated wheat field liaison, that Rhapsody must be innocent. And as Pietro tries to arrest her, he immediately jumps in the other direction, saying, Don't worry. We'll make sure no one hurts you, and we won't leave until this is all cleared up. Madrox, careful. Perhaps she did do it. She certainly gave me difficulty. She's innocent. She has a beautiful soul. I sensed it. You said our kind has to stick together. Back me on this, please. (sighs) I'm going to regret this. Thanks, Pietro. I knew you couldn't be the complete dirtbag everyone else says you are. Obviously, I'm not the... What do you mean, everyone? I love their dynamic so much. So, they do have to take Rhapsody, and they ultimately convince her to go in with them for her own protection, but Madrox swears to her that he's going to get her out of jail. She's innocent, she's being railroaded because of anti-mutant pressure. Suddenly, Madrox has decided that he's the activist, and Quicksilver is the stick in the mud, and, um... Yeah, I again, I, I feel kind of bad for Quicksilver, who who actually has the research and, and mutant activist bona fides here and, and is, is just kind of being dragged along by this. But as Jamie points out, 
This does technically help mutant kind. It is a way to humiliate noted bigot Dick Roper, and Quicksilver is actually secretly a pretty decent person. So this reads very true as far as Jamie Madrox to me, because Jamie is mostly like, you know, the sort of goofy, practical joker kind of guy doesn't take much seriously. But the fact is, he has an excellent heart. He is very optimistic. He really cares about people. And he can also be a total dumbass and be very easily manipulated. That's consistent basically from the beginning of his character arc until the, well, I would say end, but he just got resurrected for a miniseries. But, you know, still. So I have a theory about this, actually. And my theory is that it's deliberate, it's put on, because you know how David establishes Madrox a little later as being really obsessed with sort of setting himself up up as a noir detective hero? Yeah, totally. Think about how almost every noir story starts and about the biggest weakness of pretty much any of those characters. Oh, right, a femme fatale. Hey, okay, maybe that's why he agreed to join the team, because he knew that Alex Summers was going to be leading it, and he felt like he could really learn a lot about getting manipulated and duped by femme fatales, femmes fatale, uh, from Alex. I mean, it's the perfect opportunity. It's like having a mentor in getting lied to and manipulated and making bad decisions based on women with, well, specifically red hair in Alex's case, not necessarily in Jamie's case. Exactly. I'm glad we established this. It's officially canon. No. Oh, well, it's canon in my head. Now, the the way they get into Sharp and Roper's office is a pretty great trick in terms of of creative use of Jamie's powers. As you may recall, Jamie creates duplicates when he's hit, when he, he experiences any kind of significant impact. And here, what he does is manage to wiggle a finger under the door and then hit it on on the other side of the door, which creates a duplicate that who can unlock the door then from the inside and let them in. Two things there. One, that is awesome. That is as awesome a use of a power as when Quicksilver learned piano really quickly based on his super speed. I love it. I love that we keep getting all these little variations on people's powers. And second off, yeah, my mind went there too. Apparently this is the episode where I'm just 12 and think about pedally prurient juvenile things all the time. But, um... How would you even get that through there? I mean, it's right by the floor. The angle would be super weird. Oh, that wasn't what I was thinking. I thought you were talking about Madrox and how he managed to not create duplicates during sex, because I've actually thought about that. I feel like we've already brought that up on the podcast, possibly multiple times, but okay, well, I'm glad our minds are at least in somewhat compatible places here. Well done. I think. Well, I can, I, can, I can no-prize that one, which is that he has at least some conscious control over his powers. Like, really hard impact creates duplicates regardless, but obviously, if just tapping something created duplicates every time, he'd have dozens of him when he, for example, was playing the piano as he was at the beginning of the story. Okay, so the Tenacious D song, Fucker Gently, is especially meaningful to him, along with the uh, Weird Al parody of the Might Be Giant's Particle Man, Multiple Man. Yes, and oh yeah, we did bring it up because I remember talking about the, the Tenacious D thing. Perfect. Callback that we then acknowledged as a callback. Jokes are funnier when you explain them, listeners. Remember that if you ever start a podcast. Look, we've made a lot of these episodes. Um, I, I regularly have to search through to see what we've covered when I'm writing cold opens, so... I wonder if we're ever going to run out of cold open stuff, or if we're just going to have to use whatever came out that week, if we'll be that caught up. Oh, there's there's a lot I'm saving. Legit. Anyway, plot. Plot, right. Um, yes, so they try to find incriminating evidence. They figure Dick Roper, anti-mutant bigot, he was the business partner of the late Harry Sharp. Clearly he's the prime suspect, but they don't find anything, even between Pietro's super speed and dozens of Madrox dupes. 
Meanwhile, back in prison, Rhapsody is effectively powerless until a prison guard decides to cheer himself up by playing a few tunes on his handy harmonica, at which point she is able to harness the string of frequently backwards musical notes, strangle him, and escape. So this definitely lends credence to your idea that Rhapsody's powers only work through specifically musical instruments, because otherwise she could just hum or sing or something like that. But uh, I do enjoy that she actually uses the representation of a sound as a physical weapon. Yay, comic books being comic books. Man, I have mixed feelings about this because that's a cool trick. But on the other hand, there are much, much, much cooler ways to represent and play music in comics format. And I feel like this is a story I would have really loved to have seen do more with those. Yeah, fair enough. But anyway, Madrox heads back to jail and does that whole hand through the bars, making another duplicate on the other side trick to get inside. He's going to help her bust out. Except, of course, she's already got the key that she took off the cop when she strangled him with the musical notes from his harmonica. Um, but she was waiting for Jamie because she knew he'd come. She dreamt about it. And so they, they grab her violin and they fly away to make sweet, weird musical love in an astral wheat field. And at this point, she lets slip that the beauty she creates that Jamie has been so enthralled by and so complimentary toward, that beauty actually killed Harry Sharp. Apparently, him hearing her awesome musical power, hallucination, whatever, that was too much pleasure, and his heart stopped. And so, indeed, she didn't hurt him, which has been her claim all along, but her power did straight up kill him. Okay, first of all, in Rhapsody's defense that is at worst manslaughter she showed up at his house basically to try to demonstrate to him that her power was harmless she was literally trying to prove to him that it couldn't hurt anyone when this happened so she clearly believed that it wouldn't harm him that's true so the fact that the two options they're presenting are still either you know she's a murderer and a bad guy or she's absolutely innocent and blameless you know the the, the actual truth isn't either of those it's it's sort of somewhere in the middle that's true, but Jamie doesn't really see that ambiguity. He feels like he's been duped. Wah, wah. And he's furious, and he and Quicksilver stick her back in jail. Over her protestations. Please don't leave me here. There's, there's no beauty. No music. I'll die in here. Without music. Without you. As it turns out, she is exaggerating. She not only survives jail, but she is eventually one of the 198 mutants who retain their powers post-M-Day. But that is all for Rhapsody. Let's check back in with the team in Washington and see what they've been up to. Meanwhile in Washington, or at least near it, strong guy Guido Caracella goes on a date with a woman named Sean who's wearing a Catwoman costume, commenting that she should get over losing the role. Does this make no sense to you? Then you probably weren't paying attention to a very specific slice of pop culture exactly when this comic came out. Now, you may remember that Guido mentioned last issue when he was flirting with Val Cooper's lawyer friend that he knew Sean Young, who I think was a model and also an actress. I wasn't paying much attention to pop culture in that portion of 1992 either, but I do have Google. Now, Sean Young had auditioned for the part of Vicki Vale in Tim Burton's first Batman movie, and she'd lost that role. And after that, she had lobbied really hard to be cast as Catwoman, to the point of making a costume and, and, you know, taking pictures or running around in it. So this is this is a very specific reference. 
And this is something Peter David totally does. Like, you can just go through the dialogue and build yourself a sort of anthropological construct of 1992. If alien life ever comes to Earth trying to figure out what we were up to, they're going to have a really good picture of the Peter David X-Factor years. God, it's like reading a comic that was written by Twitter. <laughs> right? Except, um, not as, not as mean. I mean, kind of racist, though. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes. It's unfortunate. What's also unfortunate, in an entirely different way, is that Polaris is window shopping and thinking about Havoc in D.C. when all of a sudden, a stranger with big goddamn metal arms, which are all we see of this stranger, ambushes her, telling her not to agree to protect a woman named Marilyn Maycroft, and then clocks her in the face, knocking her the hell out. And uh, the artist does a really good job of showing how rough that is. Back at headquarters, Val Cooper gives Alex their next assignment. X-Factor will be protecting Marilyn Maycroft, uh, a.k.a. Shrew, who is a former member of the all-female gang of mutant enforcers, Hell's Bells, who until recently were working for a drug cartel, and Marilyn Shrew has turned state wi state's witness. And that brings us to X-Factor number 80, Bells and Whistles, or at least it sort of does, because all that second half of the Rhapsody stuff, that was from X-Factor 80 and 81. We are using our podcast discretion to try to keep all the plot points relatively with the plot points that they go with, as opposed to the back and forth cutting, which works really well in comics and not so well in podcasts. Now, the most immediate and most important thing about X-Factor number 80 is that Larry Stroman is back. Yay! We love Larry Stroman. What's also important is a reference to one of my favorite very timely pop culture bits, that being Wayne's World, because this issue opens with Rain's World. And, I mean, okay, it's only kind of relevant, but I have watched this movie so many times that I feel like we're compelled to do this dialogue. Well, and we know that Rain has a long history of pop culture referential dreams, so I totally buy this, at least to a point. All right, well, here we go. Rain's world, Rain's world, mutant time, excellent. Larry Stroman nails in this little pastiche Mike Myers and Dana Carvey's body language as Wayne and Garth and their facial expressions on, respectively, Wolfsbane and Havoc. As Rain says, Hi, everybody. Welcome to Rain's world. I'm Rain Sinclair. Party on, Rain. Party on, Alex. And this is my excellent friend, Alex Summers. Party on, Alex. Party on, Rain. We got a guest today. You're not going to believe it. A major total babe. If we were in Nova Roma, she'd be Babus Maximus. The one, the only, Lorna Dane. Is she a babe or what? We're not worthy. We're not worthy. Let's see. Lorna poses, taking in the adulation, when suddenly the brood attacks. Oh, no. It's the brood. Like, I'm really thrilled to see these lame-o aliens knockoffs again. Not. I think I'm gonna hurl. Is it, is it a clever reference? Is it a stupid reference? I don't even care because it references a thing I like. I think the uh, Not Another Whatever movies basically use that brand of humor entirely. I would argue that it is probably both. That's I mean, it's a stupid reference, but it's a timely reference. And again, it's in keeping with, with what we've seen of how Rain's subconscious works, I guess. And Stroman sells it. Stroman draws it well. I would, I would watch this man drawing paint dry, so... I mean, I guess you technically could if he painted, but would he be drawing the paint drying? How would you even do that? This is getting weird. Anyway, point being, Rain, who apparently had gotten dragged to a movie, guess which one, by Madrox, 
is awakened by Val. She's in the hospital, full of, you know, Strowman-esque inhabitants of various body types, those crowd scenes we were talking about before. Because Lorna, having gotten punched in the face, it's not just a usual superhero, I got hit and then I'm fine, maybe a little bruised. Her jaw is very, very broken, and it is wired the hell shut. With a contraption that corresponds to pretty much no actual medical equipment. Because I did some research on this, because it seemed iffy, and also because... A friend of mine went through this a couple years ago. Um, and yeah, no internal or external jaw fixation looks like what's going on here, but whatever, super science, have fun with it. Anyway, all she remembers is that her attacker, who she doesn't remember anything about, surprised her, otherwise she could have taken him, and said something about Marilyn Maycroft. Whom Strong Guy immediately identifies as the woman X-Factor is supposed to be protecting for their next assignment. Again, former member of the Mutant Criminals House Bells, testifying against their cartel employers. Lorna jokes about maybe the wiring jaw shut contraption helping her lose weight. This seems like a little one-off reference, but actually, if you look, there are a lot of, lot of subtle references to Lorna having a shitty body image about her own body. And these issues that she has, uh, and actually her body dysmorphia, that's going to become a plot element. We're going to get to that a lot more later, and you can decide whether you think it was handled well or poorly. But the point is, this is leading up to it. And this was something, if, if you're not familiar, that people actually used to get done as a diet thing. Not actually have their jaws broken, but have their, their mouths wired shut. Yikes. Meanwhile, elsewhere, a member of the aforementioned Hell's Bells named Flambe, which, again, is that a clever name? Is that a dumb name? I don't know. I love it. She's interrogating an agent of some sort to figure out where Marilyn Maycroft is. Her method of interrogation involves partially setting this person on fire, and once she gets her information, fully setting him on fire and incinerating him. Flambe's kind of a jerk. Now, her shadowy boss, who's in the shadows, all we see is those beefy metal arms, villain splains that they only attacked Polaris because she was the most dangerous to them, and also to put X-Factor on edge and make them less effective. Is it really accurate to describe metal arms as beefy? I mean, they're pretty buff anyway. There are giant muscles who are that are covered by metal bands, kind of like Colossus. Well, or or the arms themselves are metal. We don't know. We don't know whether whether beefiness is a relevant quality here. Hmm. There, there's got to be like a scale of beefiness. Like I know. So the bitterness in beer is IBUs. With hot sauce, it's Scovilles. How would you measure arm beefiness? No. The thing is, the term beefy doesn't just refer to size. It's specifically to the fact that it's muscle, which is what you know beef is. Okay, I mean, this makes sense. Now, as for whether there's actual beef, or human muscle as the case may be, under the metal arms, I would say we'll never find out, but actually we totally will once we find out who this guy is. I mean, they don't focus on it, but anyway, moving on. Havoc and Strong Guy are protecting Maycroft most directly at this point. Actually, they and Rain together are, are in this, this apartment, this safe house with her. She has a great power suit and a really spectacular Stroman mullet. And they, they play increasingly unimpressive games of poker to pass the time, as one does while protecting a witness in a safe house. Wolfsbane is not doing so hot because she can't bring herself to bluff against Alex. Again, she is genetically fixated on him, and it's really uncomfortable, but it's a story bit that I think is handled pretty well, especially because there's an evolution here. It's not just, hey, look, here's a joke. She's, you know, horribly genetically bonded to this dude who's much older than her. Like, I actually really enjoy this plot point. 
Yeah, no, I think I think it works here. And the way they've been sort of gradually trailing it down a little bit, but there are still bits and pieces lingering kind of makes sense. And in this case, specifically that it's that she can't lie to him. It's not just that she can't win a game against him, that she can't bring herself to lie to him feels particularly kind of sinister in that context. Now, Shrew is super unimpressed with them, but Rain, despite not lying, is able to pick out that something smells wrong when room service shows up with the food cart. Um, And she tackles the cart, spilling sauce all over the invisible woman who is hiding in it. This is a woman named Vague, and I'm, I'm glad I see in the outline that our minds went to exactly the same place here. Right, because that just takes me to the excellent web series Journey Quest, where the wizard main character has a spell called Vague, and nobody can ever really describe it. Like, at one point, he just says, it's kind of hard to nail down. It makes me very happy. Yeah, that's, that, that is delightful, by the way. Highly recommend. We'll link to it in the as-mentioned. Flambe takes this opportunity to show up as well, so it's time for a great big fight. Which Larry Stroman is excellent at drawing. He's always good at making fights easy to visually follow and super engaging. And uh, David's dialogue here is also pretty tops. Vague tells Flambe. Watch out for the blonde one, Flambe. See him? The guy wearing the Alien Legion headgear. He must be the leader, because he looks really good in that black leather. That gives us two new challengers as the rest of the Hell's Bells show up. We have Tremolo, who's an earthquake lady with tall hair, lots of zippers and random blades on her outfit, which, yeah, early 90s, totally dig it. And Briquette, who's a big, muscly red lady with leonin features and heat powers that she uses to melt handholds into the outside wall that she's climbing. And once again, we get some trademark this run of X-Factor, fight banter, as Briquette introduces herself to Strong Guy. I go by Briquette. I go buy briquettes, too, when I'm in the mood to barbecue a steak or cook someone's goose. Briquette manages to melt through the floor below Strong Guy, and he falls down a level where he is immediately scratched by a claw from the shadowy figure with the metal arms, who tells him that that claw was poison-tipped adamantium, and now Strong Guy has only nine hours to live. He adds that if X-Factor doesn't give up Shrew to the Hell's Bells, then Strong Guy can change his name to Dead Guy. I I am endlessly entertained and overjoyed by the tough guy fight banter we get in this era. Like, it's so deliciously cheesy. And, like, I may not agree with a lot of the principles behind especially 80s and 90s action movies. Like, there's some machismo in there that's not so great. But I just really enjoy the, like, over-the-top badass nonsense that the characters spew at each other. And this is a prime example. Now, this taunt will lose its fangs some years later when a character named Dead Girl is introduced. That's true. Anyway, the villain finally reveals himself. This is Cyber. This is a character that showed up recently, well, recently before this story, in Peter David's Marvel Comics Presents story about, of course, Wolverine. This story was drawn by Sam Keith, who you may recognize from The Max. That was a pretty great comic back in the day. They also turned it into an MTV short cartoon. And the influence totally shows. Cyber basically looks like a reskinned version of The Max, and I'm totally okay with that. Now, Cyber was Logan's evil old drill instructor from the evil Canadian military and um, also Logan's commander during World War II. He has adamantium-laced skin, and he's a big jerk. He also is the current Hornet um, now over in the Spider Books, which status he attained after escaping hell because comics. This issue has the same creative team as last time, and it's actually Larry Stroman's last issue. Oh. 
No. I know, no. right? We gotta find more of his stuff. I actually am not familiar with very much of his non-X-Factor stuff. I, I need to find it. Now, among Cyber's skills, including his, his metal-reinforced arms, is apparently a little bit of fourth wall breaking, because he opens the issue by saying, You look confused, strong guy. Let's recap, shall we? Now, personally, I prefer... Previously on X-Factor. Well, maybe that... Maybe you should become an X-Factor villain if, if you want to if you want to make those determinations. I feel like I get my ass kicked a lot, so I'm probably going to pass. Valid. Well, after we get a big recap from Cyber, which is very handy for anyone picking up this issue for the first time, we get another big fight. Strong Guy fights Cyber and Briquette, the latter of whom superheats the hotel's boiler, which is no good at all, because then it's going to explode, and the hotel's full of, like, hotel people. You know, guests and maids and independent contractors and probably some some comfort pets or whatever. Strong Guy is able to radio a warning to Havoc, and they are able to evacuate the hotel in time, although Strong Guy is caught in a bit of the explosion, even though his costume is shredded. Take an explosive drink. But he himself is pretty much intact. He has to smash the ground a few times to discharge the kinetic energy that he's absorbed, but he's okay other than having been poisoned. The next step is pretty clear to Guido. He says they should turn over Shrew so that Cyber gives him the antidote. I mean, he doesn't want to die, and this is consistent. Guido has always been very explicit about being on this team for the money. Noble heroic sacrifices? Not so much his style. However, also consistent is that Havoc is pretty good at saying no, so instead of grabbing Shrew and turning her over, they instead head to a toxicology center while Val Cooper fields a call from presumably Cyber, who reiterates his demands that they turn over Shrew in exchange for the antidote to Strong Guy's poison. However, a scientist at this toxicology center thinks he's developed an antitoxin of his own. Guido doesn't trust it, though. He still wants to hand over Shrew. I mean, is Shrew look testifying even going to fix anything long-term? Yeah, uh, Guido doesn't think it will. Look, Rain, if it was you they wanted, or Lex, heck, even if it was Pietro, I'd tell him to go blow. No matter what. But Shrew's just some two-bit crook who cut a deal. And if it was at least, you know, a fair fight, if my ticket gets punched by somebody tougher than me, then okay. I buy it while scrapping, then that's how it goes. But like this, where's the upside? Yeah, so, so Alex decides that the thing to do is to prove that they're in together, and so he drinks the poison sample that the toxicology center was able to extract from Guido so that either they both take the antidote or neither of them does. I should say, too, that the, the toxicology center has developed an antitoxin. It's just that Guido doesn't trust it. Um, so they, they, they both drink the antitoxin, and then they still head to Judiciary Square at midnight to ambush Hell's Bells. And just in case you weren't able to effectively date the comic from all of the other pop culture references, there's another here, uh, as usual, from Guido. You know what I heard? That if you play the Murphy Brown Gives Birth episode backwards, you can almost hear a voice saying, Dan Quayle inhales, over and over again. Yeah, this is the most early 90s book ever. But again, consistent with Guido, he's all about using humor to dispel tension or ignore pain or whatever. But he doesn't have to wait long for that tension to be resolved because... Cyber and Hell's Bells show up. And Guido appears to be dying. The antidote didn't work, and he decides it's time to hand over Shrew. Except, of course, it was a ruse, and he's fine, and a hundred or so Madroxes attack. 
Guido tackles cyber and um, the, the entire group is able to effectively take out the bells. Hooray! Shrew pushes Cyber in front of a train, and that's it. He'll never come back again, especially not, like, a whole, whole bunch more times. But still, well done, Shrew. In the subsequent denouement, um, Quicksilver pulls Havoc aside and, and is shocked that he would risk death just to prove a point. Alex points out that, actually, back in the toxicology center, he secretly traded out the poison with tap water just so he could make Guido, you know, more confident in the plan. You say to deceit? In order to gain loyalty? Summers! My respect for you has just increased a thousandfold. Man, I have mixed feelings about this, because it's a great punchline, it's legitimately funny, and it's, you know, it brings us some good dialogue from Quicksilver, but I don't know, I kind of like Alex as a full-on hero. I like him when he's just our square-jawed Boy Scout protagonist. Eh, you know, whatever. The thing is, he's never really been that guy. He's always been sort of the one who, yeah, gets some shit, gets shit done. But he's never really thought of himself as a superhero, and he's, he's, fairly, he's been fairly morally flexible in here. X-Factor's kind of a job. Now, there's a bit more a lead into the next story at the end of the episodes we're covering, but we're going to go back to that when we get to the subsequent issues, which flesh that out in more detail. So if you were here waiting for the expatriates, sorry, we'll get to those next X-Factor episode. Meanwhile, you've got questions. Violin, Coffee, and Piano asks on Tumblr, huh, that name is kind of relevant to this one, what with the Rhapsody, what are your thoughts on the X-Force Volume 2 Demon Bear arc, and are there X characters slash concepts you think are so distinctive that they should not be brought back? I'm mostly going to address the second part of this, because I think my answer to that kind of answers the first part as well, which is that I think that there's very, very little excuse for bringing back a super distinctive or personal concept unless you've got an absolutely spectacular reason. And it's fairly rare that, that, that those stories hold up. There are iconic villains who, by their nature, come back and can be brought back and brought back and brought back. But the Demon Bear in particular is so character-specific and so story-specific that, to me, revisiting it kind of, and if you'll pardon the pun, defangs its first appearance. Yeah, I think I would agree with you there. I mean, I'm, I'm also not against revisiting some characters or concepts from classic stories. Like, the Brood Saga, right. obviously, that's one of our favorites. But the Brood have been great recurring antagonists for the most part. That's totally cool. Yeah, you can have good recurring antagonists or good recurring, re recurring concepts. It's just that not everything needs to be. It almost reminds me of Pyramid Head uh, uh, appearing outside of Silent Hill 2. Like, that inevitably, Ooh, yeah. that inevitably pales in comparison to the original appearance, and it never feels quite as relevant. And I think that can be the same thing here. I like the story overall. It's just, yeah, strange choice to bring the demon bear back. Also on Tumblr, an anonymous listener asks, How would you explain the existence of essentially the same characters, albeit different versions of those characters, across the multiverse? Some of the alternate realities are drastically different from the main timeline, yet the characters' parents manage to find each other and produce offspring. Does the existence of countless alternate dimensions inhabited by different versions of essentially the same characters reveal that the Marvel creators believe in multiversal soulmates? That is an excellent question. Here's my take. I don't know if this is the official one, but... In Excalibur, right around where we are right now, Earth-616, that's referred to by Merlin, you know, Merlin, as the Prime Universe. And I always took that to mean that it was the universe within the multiverse that all the other universes were at least initially based on. Like, they all just spun off um, at some point in the Prime Earth-616's universe's history. So, therefore, they would be inclined to be a lot more like it rather than just the whole a million monkeys on a million typewriters kind of randomness. 
Is that canonical? I don't know, but it helps me sleep at night. Now, an answer that requires less extrapolation is that you're seeing only the universes that writers choose to base stories in. Presumably, there are, or at least could be, an infinite number of other combinations. They just don't come up in context of the comics, because the comics are focused on iconic characters, and therefore, when writers choose to portray other universes, they choose the ones with versions of those characters. Um, and further, you could also probably assume that the ones you see are largely the ones more or less directly connected to, and thus with more in common with, the 616. So there you go. Now, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from a variety of fictional concepts and or characters. Shall we start with the angry Claremontian narrator? In your time, Kieran Gillen, you've played God among mutants and mortals, bending cosmic forces to your whim, striking down hero and villain alike. Watch now, as all your work is wiped away with a single sweep of pages. And no matter how many clones of Ratshag nor paltry puns you may summon, your carefully constructed worlds crumble at your feet as you whisper, maybe this is why people stick with creator-owned. And now, I believe the mic is going to Sexy Rhapsody. Oh, Kyle Turner... I was doing all right, but my man's gone now. Isn't it a pity? Now, I've got a crush on you. Will you be someone to watch over me on a foggy day? You might, but not for me. Oh, who cares? Let's call the whole thing off. Ellen Smurbeck! I saw you, and I knew love walked in. But I'm not naive. I know it ain't necessarily so. Still, if love is here to stay, they can't take that away from me. Strike up the band, and let's take this stairway to paradise. See, now I'm imagining a version of Rhapsody whose powers are activated not by musical instruments, but just by Gershwin references. Uh, yeah, sorry, Kyle and Alan. Um, I don't know if you knew that's what you were going to be getting into when you chose Sexy Thanks, but um, <laughs> there you go. You know, I feel like anyone who selected sexy thanks after the thing with the bicycle horn really only has themselves to blame. That's probably true. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, this week in Sarasota, Florida, and Portland, Oregon, and it's produced by Matt Hunter. Again, Matt, congratulations! Yay! New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, the Morlocks return in Uncanny X-Men. Along with our favorite morally dubious Vintner. Vintner.